0: You're listening to KALX Berkeley, 90.7 FM, University of California, and listener-supported radio, and this is Method to the Madness, coming at you from the Public Affairs Department here at CalX, exploring the innovative beer- spirit of the Bay Area. I'm your host, Ali Nazar. Thanks for joining us today, uh, and with me in studio, I have Jason Marsh, the founding editor-in-chief of Greater Good Magazine. Hey, Jason, how's it going? All right. How are you? Thanks for having me. I'm um, good. Thanks for coming in, and so we have lots of founders on of organizations and um, I always ask the same question to start because you usually create something because you see like a gap. You're trying to fill something. So, what's the
1: kind of the problem statement that Greater Good is trying to solve? Sure. Well, there are really two kind of at the heart of, of Greater Good. And um, one is that there is a whole lot of great research and big ideas generated within universities like Cal. Um, that never really see the light of day, never really make it out into the world and have an impact to improve people's quality of life, to improve relationships, to improve public policy and our education. Um, And so Greater Good was really born of this idea that we should have more of a bridge between science and practice. There should be ways where the fruits of research um, should really make its way out to the public to really Benefit the public, improve public well-being really broadly, improve individual well-being, improve the way people relate to one another, um, and improve institutions like uh, schools and workplaces and healthcare systems and, um, and political systems as well. Um, and really, the the second animating idea uh, behind greater good was that um, there is this fundamental misconception about human nature. Um, there is this, has been a prevailing belief that we're sort of born that born bad, born aggressive, born antisocial. And yet there was this emerging body of research over time really pointing to this more, po- more positive narrative about human nature, uh, suggesting that actually there are really deeply rooted propensities for goodness, for altruism, for compassion. And um, by changing that narrative and changing what people expect humans are capable of, we can really change behavior and really change some of those institutions as well for the better. So there was really this marriage of ideas that there was you know a real need uh, to get the word out about this research coming out of academia, coming out of social science, um, to really change people's understanding of, of who they are, what they're capable of, um, and in effect, you know, provide a huge bridge between. What's, what the scientific community was starting to understand and what the rest of the world could really benefit from.
0: Wow. Sounds amazing and so needed in these times. And it it makes me wonder about kind of the history of the science of happiness. Like that doesn't seem like a science. When you think about sciences, right. what is what is the history behind this study?
1: Sure. So, you know, so backing up, you know, for decades, really, you know, for much of the 20th century, a lot of psychology and and other uh, behavioral, cognitive, social sciences were really focused on the roots of pathologies. You know, the roots of why is it that people do evil, do bad things, how do institutions become corrupt? Uh, but starting, you know, there had been this this strain of research that really, toward the late '90s, started to take off and focusing on let's look not just at human pathology. Let's let's look not just at what's wrong with people, but really try to understand um, what can go right and how we can actually help people have a greater sense. Of thriving and happiness and well-being, um, both to address some of the deficiencies that we that we experience, and also to take, um, you know, certain situations where people might feel like they are just sort of getting by in life, and to really infuse a, a greater sense of uh, of thriving, of happiness, of well-being, uh, to really create, a, in some ways, a more positive ripple effect through society as a whole, um, and so that there has been this growing movement, some call positive psychology, as a uh, in some ways, uh, to distinguish it from other strains of psychology, um focusing really on on happiness and well-being. And our center has in some ways built on some of that research, but we've also really drawn on work not just on individual happiness and and personal well-being, but really social relationships. and there's a at the same time, has been a growing emphasis not just on personal happiness, but on uh, social relationships on compassion on altruism, really, what makes people do good and what makes people feel good.
0: So that it's a relatively new science, is what you're saying, yeah. late '90s. So it's a 21st century type of study. That's exactly. Happened. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Um, so before we dive further into what Greater Good does, can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Like, how did you come to become founding editor of a magazine dedicated to this topic?
1: Uh, sure. Yeah. I sometimes think of myself as like the the luckiest guy in in Berkeley. I I came out here. In the early 2000s, about 2002, just at the time, the center uh, at the time, the center was called the Center for the Development of Peace and Well Being. So it was a real, a real mouthful, um, <laughs> and it was a bunch of psychology faculty who kind of knew, you know, really broadly that they they had this mission to take this new research. Of well-being, new new research of of uh, compassion and generosity, and help get it out to a wider audience. But they didn't quite know how to how to do that. They didn't have as much experience in on the communication side, on the journalism side. My background's in journalism. Um, I got connected to the faculty. They basically invited me to pitch what I would do with uh, uh, some kind of publication focused on this research, on these topics. Um, I had been doing something sort of coincidentally, some somewhat similar type of work in Washington, D.C. i have been editing this more political journal um, on civic engagement and, and community building, um, a lot of overlap. And so put together kind of a, my dream job basically for what uh, I would do with a, a magazine along these lines that I thought would really be uh, beneficial and really make a big public impact and, and really help people. And, um, you know, the team liked the idea. We developed the first issue as a pilot and uh, that was published in 2004. And it's kind of taken off from there. 14 years later. Yeah. Still publishing. Is it a monthly, quarterly? What is so it? So it started off as a print magazine and became a quarterly. 2009, we shifted to be entirely online. So it's now Greater Good Magazine is now entirely online. And then since that time as well, we've grown other programs and projects out of Greater Good. So there's still the hub, Greater Good, uh, greatergood.berkeley.edu is still the hub of all kinds of content, you know, thousands of articles and videos and podcasts. Uh, but we have also an event series, uh, a couple of online courses, you know, a host of other other programs, all basically focused on the same research.
0: Cool, well I wanna get more into kind of what you guys do in the breadth of it right now. We're talking to Jason March, Marsh, he's the founding editor and chief of Greater Good Magazine right here on campus at uh, UC Berkeley. And um, before we get into the breadth of programs, I did want to get a little bit more into that founding story of the Greater Good Center itself, because mm-hmm. this this show really focuses on this kind of spark of how do things grow from this one idea. So it sounds like you had walked into an organization that was just kind of beginning. right? Exactly. Can you give us the history of Yeah. That? So
1: it's a, it's a really amazing and, and pretty powerful story. So um, there were a, a couple, Tom and Ann Hornaday, who graduated from Berkeley in the early 60s, and um, and then, sadly, in the '90s, um, lost a daughter to to cancer, and and they both were trying to honor her memory and spirit, and also um, uh, build on their their great love and affinity for Cal, and came to the university and said, essentially, we want to do something to foster peace and well being in the world, and to honor her memory and honor. But they knew was really the great research and great ideas coming out of Cal. And um, they, together with George Breslauer, who's Dean of Social Sciences at the time, um, came up with an idea for a center that would be different than a lot of other centers at Cal or, or beyond, in that it wouldn't just be focused on research. It would really be focused on taking research conducted at Cal and even more broadly, and really focusing on getting that work out to the public so it had a wider impact on families, on schools, and society at large. Um, so there was sort of this initial brainstorming committee of a few psychology faculty at, at Cal. So uh, Dacker Keltner was our founding faculty director. Steve Hinshaw and Phil and Carolyn Cowan were all psychology faculty, um, who, whose research in one way or another all focused on, you know, how do we not only address sort of what's wrong with people, but help them build really positive lives, positive relationships. And um, so together came up with the idea of, and I should say as well, Dacher and, and Steve and and Phil and Carolyn all were committed in their own work not just to doing really top-tier research, but also really to find innovative ways to get that work out to the public and and have it uh, serve a real uh, public benefit. So um, so together they came up with the idea for a center that would that would do that, came up with the idea for a center for the development of peace and well-being. Um, fortunately, I was able to connect with them just at that moment where they're contemplating how to really get the center out to a, to a wider audience, get the research out to a wider audience. Um, and I should say a few years after that, After Greater Good launched as a print magazine, we changed the name of the center to be the Greater Good Science Center instead of the Center for the Development of Peace and Wellbeing. Yeah, Greater Good's a little catchier. A little catchier. (laughs) A lot of confusion uh, about what exactly we did, and it was also really hard and long to say. (laughs) Okay, so you're uh, Jason, you're
0: someone who traffics in this knowledge of what makes people happy, so I have to ask you the question, what
1: makes people happy? Uh, Good question. So the simple answer is, um, is strong social connections and positive relationships. Um, there's a line from the research, though, sort of with a caveat, there's a line from the research saying um, relationships are necessary but not sufficient to happiness, right? So if you don't have positive relationships, it's going to be really hard to find true happiness in life. And yet it's not just about relationships itself. There could be other factors, other extenuating circumstances, other things in play that could still hinder your happiness, uh, but The relationships are often really a foundation and and key starting point. Um, So out of that work, you know, there has been a whole host of studies, lots of research looking at the benefits and also how do you then build successful connections? How do you build successful relationships that are so strongly linked to happiness? Um, I should say as well, when we talk about happiness, we're not just talking about fleeting feelings of pleasure, you know, and just feeling good. Uh, definition that we use is it is partly about positive emotion, but it's also about this deeper sense of purpose and meaning <clears throat> and satisfaction with your life um, that goes beyond just moment-to-moment experiences of, of pleasure. Um, so that's why our our tagline actually for the center is the science of a meaningful life, right? This deeper sense of of goodness or commitment to something beyond the self.
0: It's really interesting that that's the, that's the definition as you see it, um, because it's it, it speaks to the interdependence that we all have on each other, as opposed to like you know it's a very American I think concept to be yeah, very exactly. independent, yeah, exactly. and not need anybody. So it's like our society is maybe not set up to be happy in some ways. If if that's what you guys have found in the science,
1: right? Yeah, exactly. And that's in some ways um, makes the work somewhat challenging. We're running against some pretty big cultural currents. Uh, at the same time, that's what gets us up in the morning to feel like oh they're they're. Is a need for a, for the work. It isn't just something that people are already completely embracing. You know, that's already you know totally uh, dominant beliefs or practices in our in our culture. There are these competing ideas, and and don't get me wrong. I think there's a lot to be said, obviously, for um, you know individualism and and uh, for independence. But um, part of our work and part of the research suggests is that it's really important to find the right balance, right, between both pursuing your own personal goals and and dreams and and well being, and also recognizing the ways that. Um, you are also living in community, your actions affect others, and uh, a lot of your well-being is both contingent on and helps to influence uh, the well-being and contributions of others. So have you, have?
0: Um, I would think in the science of happiness, um, there's been studies of many different cultures and like, this is social science, right? So it's yeah. a lot of like looking at long trends and mm-hmm. surveys and stuff like that. Um, so what are some of the learnings that um, have been found from other countries that maybe aren't as Individualistic, capitalistic, as right. America.
1: Yeah. So you know, it's a great question. In the last uh, five, ten years or so, there's been, as the science of happiness has taken off and really gone global, gl- gone global in a lot of ways. Um, there um, has emerged a broader sense of happiness around the world. There is now um, a World Happiness Report put out sort of in connection with uh, with the UN um, regularly. That often finds that the countries that are um rank the highest on measures of, of happiness looking at, at several different factors um, are the ones that have in some ways a, a stronger egalitarian spirit, have um, a stronger sort of you know social democratic tradition of um, you know greater commitment to the common good and uh, and less inequality. so a lot of those uh, values that are more community minded more um, civically minded um, often translate into, greater happiness uh, for individuals within the country itself, which is sort of paradoxical, right? We often think about um, those two things being somewhat at odd, right? Like having to sacrifice your needs for the greater good, um, when in fact, like actually uh, having that commitment to the greater good, having a commitment to something bigger than yourself, having a a culture and even a government that tries to foster um, that greater sense of like, we're all in this together. Actually, the individuals within those societies do better, feel better individually as well.
0: Are there any places in the world, like if... If you're uh, you know looking to be an expat American, you want to become a happy person. Where should we go? So
1: Denmark always ranks really high. Oh, yeah. uh, Denmark, Norway, uh, Scandinavian, the Netherlands, Scandinavian yeah. countries. Uh, yeah, Costa Rica does as well. Actually, often in a lot of those. Uh, Is there a surveys. correlation between
0: higher tax rates and happiness? <laughs> um,
1: <laughs> there, that's been looked at a little bit.
0: Uh, you know, so it, a bit of theoretically,
1: that's a good for the you're giving it to other people. Right. right? Exactly. Um, yeah i mean there's um you know that the tax rate itself hasn't i wouldn't say it's been proven as a as a definite cause or clear determinant of uh happiness, but certainly there are a lot of other sort of uh you know correlational data a lot of other data suggesting that there's a strong relationship um at the very least you know there's evidence suggesting that um inequality is bad for happiness right and inequality is also bad for um, for pro social behavior as well, pro social as opposed to antisocial behavior, right? So, um So in situations where there are greater power imbalances, um, it's not just bad for the person who is on the lower end of the totem pole, but also for uh, someone who is in a higher level of status. There's evidence suggesting that actually their skills at connecting with other people, being more altruistic, being more compassionate, those skills are actually compromised by their elevated status. So all the kinds of skills that you need really to make the kinds of connections that are linked to happiness um, are impeded by elevated status.
0: Yeah, it's really, really fascinating. We're talking to Jason Marsh. He's the founding editor-in-chief of Greater Good Magazine um, from the Greater Good Science Center right here on campus. Um, You're listening to Method to the Madness on KALX Berkeley, 90.7 FM. I'm your host, Ali Nazar. And so one of the founding principles of this center is to bridge the gap between academia and the real world. And so I was looking at your guys' website. You have a lot of programs for different types of real-world applications. So I'd like to dive in a little bit about kind of how you guys are delivering on that promise of the the mission so um first let's talk about parents and families that's one of the uh, constituencies you kind of name on your website mm-hmm. and uh you know I'm a member of a family and it's hard you know with little kids and all that and um so happiness is a is a thought that comes around a lot sure, cuz like yeah. you're kind of always yelling at some little kid to do something right. so what have you guys found and how do you apply research
1: to that that setting? Sure. So, I mean, one of the main things we've tried to do really from from day one is to produce um, quality research-based materials, resources for parents, you know, who are often um, uh, up, you know, at 2 a.m. I've been in this case with a kid of my own, you know, uh, Googling ways, looking for ways to be a better parent, <laughs> to like yell less at your kids, yeah. you know, to be more understanding, be more patient. Um and so part of our part of our focus has been from day one to um really focus not just on um you know common wisdom, conventional wisdom, um but really what the research suggests are really effective ways uh to foster happiness and, and well being within families and also uh to raise kids with the kinds of, of skills um that lead them to uh sort of happy and and meaningful lives. So um from early on we had um Produced when we had the print magazine, you know, a lot of articles on families and child development. Um, we had for a number of years a uh, really popular parenting blog called Raising Happiness um, by a actually Berkeley PhD uh, Christine Carter, who wrote a book of the same name um, that also proved to be you know, a really great resource for for parents. And uh, more recently, we've actually launched a new parenting initiative. Um, we have a great parenting director at the center, Miriam Abdullah, who. Um, runs a program where she's both writing about the science of well-being for parents and families, and also um, running a program where we give out uh, grants, sort of modestized grants, to different community-based programs around the country that want their work to serve parents and help their 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 kids help 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 parents help their kids uh, develop the kinds of skills that we know are are linked to to happiness and and well-being and um, leading sort of you know positive meaningful lives. Um, so providing both funding and also helping to connect those programs to researchers who can help ground their work a little bit more deeply in the research to make sure that there's a really strong scientific basis to it.
0: Okay, cool. And tell me about some of the other programs. I, I saw there was a bunch of different people or, or constituencies that you kind of focus on, but tell me about some of the sure. main programs. Right yeah, now.
1: So, um, so like parents, we've also focused a lot on educators over the years, um, really helping people who are trying to help kids, uh, especially both so that they can um, provide useful resources and tools for kids and also to serve their own well-being, right? I mean, educators, there's um, huge demands, a lot of stressors, uh, a lot of evidence that there's really great burnout and turnover in the profession. Um, so we've tried to provide resources both so that teachers can better serve their students and also so they can better serve themselves and, and make sure that they don't burn out. So um, similarly, we have a whole host of resources on our website for For teachers, we also, for the last six years, have run a summer institute for educators. Um, We've had teachers come from just about every state in the country, from dozens of countries around the world, uh, to come to Berkeley for uh, a week and get really a crash course in the science of well-being and explore together how they can take the science and really apply it meaningfully to to their classroom. Um, and now, more recently, we're, our education team is developing a new resource uh, coming soon, early early uh, in 2019, um, really to serve as a clearinghouse for really the, the best tools, best resources, best practices, and strategies, so that to make it even easier for teachers to take all this wisdom from the science and really incorporate it into their classroom, into their school, without having to add you know yet another thing uh, on their agenda to make it as seamless and, and hopefully as painless as possible.
0: Cool. Well, it sounds like there's your website has a lot of tools. It sounds like for helping people to access the different programs you have, and um, and there's, and then when I was looking through, there's a breadth of things you guys do. There's mm-hmm. events, there's uh, content being published, and yep, exactly. um, So I did want to ask about you've uh, we you talked about what makes people happy, um, but this science I would think and the study of this would give you some tips on how to. Change someone who's not happy to become happy like mm-hmm. that 's the trick right yeah um, there's a lot of people out there who are weighted down by a lot of different stressors of all different types so mm-hmm. what's your recommendation? You guys have a little access to all this knowledge yeah. if there's a listener who's not happy, what mm-hmm. should they do
1: yeah, so there are um, it's been a it's been a really big question in the field right because early on, focus on happiness was like let's just figure out if we can take people who are you know moderately happy and, and try to make them happier. Um, more recently there's been a focus on you know let's look at more at-risk populations and people even who are having suicidal thoughts or at risk for depression um, and see if a lot of these same strategies can be effective for them as well and and fortunately you know many of them many of them have been um, there are should say I like offer the caveat you know right up front um, for people dealing with you know serious uh, depression or serious uh, psychiatric problems um, you know it's still, um, you know, most important for them to see a, a mental health professional. Um, the tools that we offer on the site are not supposed to be a substitute for for therapy, say. But certainly there's a huge number of people who just feel like, you know, who are uh, kind of unhappy, you know, who are maybe um, uh, struggling with maybe some symptoms of depression or, or just feel like they're not as satisfied with their lives as they'd like to be. And so that, you know, the research has found, uh, um, successfully found that there are, ways that they can actually benefit um, over time. And one of the big focus uh, focuses of that work has been on gratitude as a practice, right? So there's been, for the last 20 years or so, uh, a huge emerging science of gratitude that um, we focused on a lot, um, which in some ways is uh, just really simply recognizing and appreciating um, the, the gifts and good things in your life that you might otherwise take for granted, right? So the uh, basic idea is there are lots of positive things that might happen to us over the course of a day that we just kind of ignore or take for granted. And um, by training our minds over time and focusing a little bit more deliberately on some of those good things, we can gradually kind of change the narrative that we're telling ourselves about our lives and change kind of the emotional tone of our lives um, so that it ceases just to be about the ways that people have taken advantage of you or been mean to you, um, but you start to recognize ways that people have actually gone out of their way to be kind to you and nice things that people have done for you. Um, And you see yourself differently in relation to others. You see other people differently and you see sort of human nature uh, differently as well. So um, and at the same time, you're creating more of these positive memories, right? By actually noticing and appreciating and savoring more positive experiences, you're then creating these positive memories you can return to. Over time as well. So it pro- provides both these greater momentary experiences of, of happiness and also these greater lasting memories and lasting resonating feelings of happiness as well.
0: It's so interesting that you say that. We're speaking with Jason Marsh. He's the founding editor uh, of Greater Good Magazine. It's interesting that you say that because our society is moving to a place with less time and less and less time. So like you're talking about getting space yeah. to recognize positive things and be grat- have gratitude for it. But it feels like we have less and less space
1: yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a huge issue, and I think, um, I mean, that's been something we focus on, you know, in the last few years, especially is the impact of of new technology, especially on on well being, on on being able to hone a lot of these skills. Because yeah, I mean, gratitude. There's also a huge emerging science, which a lot of people have read about on mindfulness. Um, a lot of it places really strong emphasis on taking moments, essentially, to pause and notice your surroundings, even you know, savor and appreciate some of the good you might pass by otherwise. And um, that is really at odds both with the pace of our culture, with our work lives, with technology. Um, and so in some ways, you know, it's a, it's a great challenge. But in some ways, it's calling for the need for these practices to be you know, as widely spread and embraced or, or embraced uh, as widely as, as possible because there are so many other forces that are pushing in the opposite direction.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, the work is really needed. So um, I appreciate you coming in and telling us about it. Um, I always end interviews at Method to the Madness with the same question. Um, This is an organization founded with a thesis to help bridge the gap between the academic research on happiness and, you know, getting it out there in the world. Um, So if everything went perfect five years from now, like what would the Greater Good Center look like?
1: Yeah. So if everything went well five years from now, um, we've been asking this question ourselves a lot lately. Um I think we would see a lot of the uh tools and ideas we're putting out in the world embraced not just by more individuals like we we're really pleased to see the growth in our in our uh, organization as a in general we. When How are, many people work? We are a print magazine. Well, so we have we have a staff of fourteen, but other grad students and faculty who are involved. Um, when we started as a print magazine, we reached five thousand subscribers. We now have about six hundred thousand unique visitors to the website each month. We have an online course that, that's enrolled about six hundred thousand students as well. Um, anybody so can enroll. Anybody can enroll. It's a free course. Anybody can access the resources on the website. They're all free. Um, so that's all really really gratifying to see so many individuals really hungering for and and based on you know our own. Surveys and research uh, seemingly benefiting from those resources. However, we feel like um, there's still just really huge needs in organizations, in institutions, you know, in our education system, in our healthcare system, in our workplaces. And we're starting more and more to work more directly with schools and districts and companies uh, and leaders in healthcare. And where we'd really like to go and where we'd like to see the work go <clears throat> is to see it embedded even more directly to inform and really influence and shape um the policies and best practices within some of those major institutions that just have influence over, you know, millions, if not billions of people worldwide.
0: Cool. Well it's a it's a great um vision and mission. So thanks for coming in today, Jason. Um, for we've it. been speaking with Jason Marsh. He's the founding editor in chief of Greater Good magazine. And Jason, just um a quick plug for if people want to understand how to get involved and access these resources. Can
1: you tell them how to do it? Yeah, thanks, Holly. It's uh best place to go is um, our Greater Good magazine website. That's greatergood.berkeley.edu. And best way to stay on top of what we're doing and stay in touch is to sign up from that site for our free weekly newsletter. Okay, great. We heard it right here. This is KALX Berkeley. I'm your
0: host, Ali Nazar on Methods of the Madness. Thanks for joining everybody. And thanks again for joining us, Jason. And everybody have a great Friday.